You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Welcome to Uncorking Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin. And today I'm excited to introduce you to Laura Engel. Uh, Laura likes to say that she is late to the game as a budding new author. Originally from Biloxi, Mississippi, Laura has lived in Southern California for over 50 years. She and her husband, Gene, are the proud parents of six grown children along with their significant others. They're delighted to be Grammy and Papa to 10 grandchildren. And her memoir is You'll Forget This Ever Happened, uh, which will be available soon. We'll talk more about that uh, momentarily. And here to talk about her memoir as well as the story behind it is uh, today's guest, Laura Engel. Laura, welcome to Uncorking a Story. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here today. Well, it's my, my pleasure to have you. I'm curious, and this is what I always ask people as, as we begin these conversations, where does your story as an author begin? Well, my story began after a miracle happened in my life. My husband and I had taken a DNA test, Ancestry.com DNA test, along with our, our grown children, our five grown children. And... Um, what happened was a son who I had had a secret son as a teenager, I was taken to an unwed mother's home in New Orleans, Louisiana, gave birth to my son and was um, pretty much forced to relinquish him to a closed adoption. Um, I was told I would forget him, never talk about it. Um, it was such a, a huge thing in 1967 to become an unwed mother as a teenager. And so um, I thought I'd never write about, or my gosh, not even talk about this. Hardly anyone even knew this had ever happened in my life. And uh, my own sons, because I'd gone on to have three more sons, they had no idea. And um, anyway, after the miracle, my husband and I were sitting outside and I was so in love and excited about my son finding me. And, and I was so overcome with happiness. And I'd been writing a little bit about uh, family history with my, um, like for, uh, for my children, just a, a thing for my children, like genealogy type stuff. And so what happened was my husband said to me, honey, this is your story. Um, your story is your son finding you and what happened? And I said, I can never write this story. It's too painful. What happened back then? And he said, Maybe that's why you should write it, even if it, you just write it for yourself. And that's how my story came to life. Well, I want to I want to dig into this a little bit because I'm fascinated for a number of reasons, and I'll, I'll share some of those reasons in, in a little bit. Um, but when um, you mentioned sort of giving um, giving birth, giving your son up for adoption and a closed adoption, did your husband know about the son? Or, yes. Okay, so it wasn't a complete, you know, a, I told a complete him surprise we, to him. 
Right. I told him before we got married. I felt okay. like it was important. And here's the reason I told him. We were single parents. We met on a soccer field. And um, after a year or so, we were starting to get really serious with each other. And he kept saying, one of the things he really loved about me was I was such a good mother. And I felt such guilt, even all those years later, and shame. And I said, I have to tell you something. And if you think less of me, I'll, I'll understand. And that's how much I had carried that that shame and guilt, mm-hmm. which would continue to be in my life. But he was very respectful of the fact that I couldn't talk about it. And he, along with me, kept it a secret. Yeah. Um, so, so going back to, you said it was 1968. I had him in 1967. 1967. Okay. Um, uh, you're a teenager at the time. 17. I was a high school senior. All right. And somebody tells you, you'll forget, you'll forget him. You were told that in the home. And who, who's the, who is this monster who could even have those words like leave their mouth? Well, it was pretty much routine. Um, my parents, my parents were very good people, but this was the thing that was done back then with young girls who had no ring on their finger. Um, it was such an embarrassment to the families. And I think the first person who brought it up was our minister. And he told my father about this place. And once it was made clear that the uh, young man who was the father did not want to have anything to do with me, my um, father decided that's where they would take me. Mm-hmm. And even at that time, I was told, you will forget this. Um, you'll you know, have this, this baby. You're going to give it a good life. It's better off without you. You're too young. You know, all the excuses. What would you do? And, and in truth, I was a very immature teenager at that time. Um, I, I believed them until after I gave birth and looked at my son and I knew I could never forget this child. Yeah. I mean, it was the most traumatic thing that's ever happened to me in my life. And um, the, at the home, we were told there was no social workers in 1967 at this home. There was, um, I mean, they didn't abuse us physically or anything. We had to work, but um, we were constantly told we would forget about it. And all the girls talked about, I'm going back home. This will be over. So it was almost like everyone bought into that. And the truth is, I never forgot that baby. I didn't forget him for a day. A day did not go by that I did not think of my son. And um, as years went by, it, it just really, um, it didn't go away. It didn't go away till the day he found me. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm just so glad he found me. You know, right. It yeah. made me a healthier person in many ways. I can only imagine like that whenever his birthday would roll around mm-hmm. and what you must have been feeling. That's interesting you said that because um, you'll see in the book and on the cover of the book, I actually have a, a picture of his birth card. And um, I snuck that off of his bassinet and put it in my pocket. And I carried that across the country. I kept it all these years in a little box in my closet, moved several times, was a single mother, made several moves with my other children. No 
time did I not have that little card in the box and I would take it out on his birthday and I would take it out on holidays, but especially on his birthday. And um, it was my only, it was my only proof of my son. It was my only tangible thing I could hold. I had no photos because in a closed adoption, there's no photos. There's no, you know, you don't know who adopts your child. You know, you know, nothing. You don't know where he lives. And the records are sealed in Louisiana. Yeah. So um, we're, we're going to fast forward a bit because I'm, I'm really curious to know um, after you do the DNA test and, and this miracle happens in your life, um, what changes in, inside you? What, 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 what do you feel before you, even before you meet your son? Oh, wow. Um, well, I'll tell you how I found out. I was out walking with our dogs at night and um, I, my phone went off because I always take my phone, of course. And it's just out in our back lot. But um, I looked down at the phone and there's this from Ancestry, parent-child match. And even though I knew when I took that test, I knew there was a possibility of this and I, I wanted him to find me. And at the same time, I was afraid of him finding me because I had such remorse and um, I guess guilt and shame. And I felt like he would, wouldn't, he wouldn't want anything to do with me. And if he found me, he'd probably be angry with me. I don't know why I felt that, but maybe because I was angry with myself, but I'm walking the dogs. I look down at the phone and you know that old saying when they say your knees went out from under you? Mm-hmm. My knee, or you fall to your knees. I guess that's the saying. I literally, my knees actually buckled. I ran in the house, left the dogs out there. Coyotes, I didn't care. <laughs> you know, I ran inside and my husband was like, oh my gosh, what happened? What happened? He thought something happened to the dogs because I was shaking so hard. I, I could not physically, I could not even talk. I couldn't like stand still. So anyway, I, um, I ran to the computer, clicked on the, the site, read what he had written. And there was my son saying, I'm adopted. And I think, I think you may be my mother. Mm-hmm. And um, I have questions. I'm not I'm not kidding you. The the fear was horrible because this is something I'd always wanted. But when it happened, it was like, oh my God. I never planned what happened after he found me. You know, I I wanted him to find me or me find him, but I never thought about all the, you know, all of a sudden my whole world was changed. And I was so thrilled. I was so thrilled. I was just crying nonstop. I cried for hours. Um, We began to email back and forth. And he said, can I call you tonight? And at first he was very standoffish. And I thought, I'm going to, you know, do that. I would be very professional and just say, uh, could you please tell me when your birthday is? There is a possibility. And, I, and then we began getting more and more emotional. And that night he called me and we talked for four hours. Mm-hmm. It was the most wonderful feeling I've ever had in my life. When you first heard his voice, what, what did you feel? We're asking all the right questions. When I heard his voice, I felt like I, I, I knew his voice. And before I could say that, he said to me, I know your voice. 
it was like we it was like talking to my other sons of course he had a, a southern accent because he was still living in louisiana my other sons don't they're born and raised out here but it was just it was just like talking to any of my sons it was like we immediately had a connection um he flew out here four days later which is something he was not normally a person that would just jump up and fly away and his wife had told me that but it was wonderful it was beautiful he when he first walked in our door and we put our arms around each other you know how your children have it's like they're part of you and when you hug them or touch them you're almost touching yourself mm-hmm. that's how it felt and this is he was not a strange man to me he was my son immediately it was uh it was organic it was mm-hmm. just this beautiful feeling and i know it helped me because just being able to unburden that secret because from the minute he talked to me i was ready to tell the world i had no idea i'd write a book but i was ready to tell the world it was no secret anymore and i was proud of it i was proud that we, he had found me and you know i i knew it was something that I had no control over when it happened. It was not something I maliciously did. And all those feelings of of shame, you know, I can't tell you they never went away because they're so buried inside of you. But it was was such a release, I guess Mm -hmm. is the right word. It was beautiful. So how how many years ago did did this happen? It happened in 2016. Okay. my son uh, and I immediately started having a relationship. Um, I had three new grandchildren. Um, his wife and he both opened arms to me and I flew back there in a, a couple of months later to, um, they lived in Baton Rouge. And uh, I'd been home to the coast many times to Biloxi, but I'd never, and I'd always kind of look around the room and I always thought he was gonna look like his father who was a blonde and he looked so much like my family. He looked so much like me. One of his daughters is his oldest daughter is like a clone of me. Oh, wow. She's a little bookworm. Well, she's not so little anymore now. She's 14, but she's so much like I was. And I would never have known that little girl if we hadn't found each other or his other two beautiful children. Yeah. Um, Just out of curiosity, did um, his birth father ever get a chance to meet him? His birth father died. Um, I don't know exactly what year it was. And this is weird. Um, my father, who never spoke about this, that's another thing. When I went home, nobody spoke about that time. It was like, and how unhealthy is that? That, you know, the two people that love you the most can't even talk to you when I try to bring up the subject they would either leave the room or they would change the subject. It was made very clear to me, you're not to talk about this. Yeah. It's, it's a secret. And um, what's amazing is that when, um, when he came into my life, I had to tell him his father, who his father was, and that he had passed away from stomach cancer. And the only way I knew this, because I never contacted him again, he never contacted me. I heard little things about him over the years from a girlfriend back there, but um, I really, we really kind of just severed the whole thing. 
And so the way I found out he had passed away is my father sent me his obituary. And so he never got to meet his father and his mm -hmm. father never got to meet him. And he actually had no interest in finding his father's family because I you know, offered to help him do that. Yeah. You know, what, one of the reasons why your story was so intriguing to me um, is because my older brother, uh, Gregory, um, is adopted. My parents adopted him in 67, 68. Um, and a few years ago, he never knew who his birth parents were. Um, but it always, you know, it always kind of was in the back of his mind, you know, who, who were these people? And he was going through some health issues, um, I think with some tremors in his hands, and he needed to get some information, but he couldn't. Um, you know, it was a closed adoption as well. And one day he owns a, a liquor store in Connecticut. And one day he's in a store and somebody walks in and he gets a really strange feeling, very strange feeling. Um, it's so strange that he goes into his back room because he knows something is off. Um, and it's a young woman who's claiming to be his biological sister. Um, and I mean, they look, it's uncanny. They look exactly alike, but the, you know, his mother had tracked him down um, using a private investigator. And um, yeah, it was, um, you know, it's, it's one of the reasons just ha having him go through that experience. And he shared it with me, you know, pretty soon after it happened, he's like, we have to go to dinner. I'm like, okay, what's going on? Who has cancer? You know, is everybody okay? Yeah. And, and he tells me the story and I'm like, oh my gosh. And he was, you know, he was saying things like, and he never really felt the need to, to, you know, he didn't want to necessarily meet his birth mother because he thought it was um, almost a betrayal to our parents, you know, the, yes. the, the, yes. The, yes. the people who raised him. And, you know, he, I think he wound up in communication with her um, and basically said, you know, you, you did the best thing for me. And, mm -hmm. um, I had a, have a wonderful life with two you know, wonderful and, and loving parents, right. um, which was, um, hopefully a comfort to, to his mother. Um, I hope that's a comfort to, it's a, to his it's mother. It's a huge comfort. I really regret that I never got to thank my son's, um, parent, uh, his adoptive parents because his adoptive mother died. 18 years before he found me and he didn't want to find me. His wife mm -hmm. talked him into doing it. Really? Had, and she said for health, you know, reasons for the kids. And so they'll know, we'll know, you know, DNA wise, you know, all that. she convinced him to do it. And that's why the first few emails were, were not hostile, but they were cool. Mm -hmm. And then I finally, I, I said, I couldn't help myself because I am an emotional person. And I wrote, and said, I am, I'm sobbing right now because I, I'm just overcome. And then he wrote back and said, I am too. And I was like, oh, thank God. He's emotional. You know, he can feel it. And he, he, I didn't know if he would like me or I, I didn't know who he was. And I was like, this is such a strange thing. And, and I had to tell my sons and um, I was so worried about telling my sons because I'm very close to them. And I, yeah. You know, we, we have really good relationships. And um, I made a list that night, my husband and I did it. And we decided, you know, he was, I had to tell everyone he couldn't tell the story. It was my story. 
So I went down the list calling all of the kids, including my stepchildren, who are adults as well. And um, they were all pretty shocked that this had happened. And they all had different, they all had a different response because they're all different individuals. But it was like you with your brother. They thought when I said, I have something to talk to you about, it's very private and I have to do it over the phone. And so it's got to be, you know, private, please, you know, be in a a place. When can I talk to you? I made it so um, intriguing and so weird that they were just like, mom, are you okay? Right away. They thought I cancer or something horrible had happened, or maybe something was wrong with Jean. And I, and then when, when I would tell them, I remember, and this is what I did even with my friends. I had this, I don't know why, but I would say, I'm going to tell you something and I hope you won't think less of me because I honestly thought I was going to get a very strong negative reaction. I got just the opposite from my children, my, um, my brothers who I didn't think knew because, you know, it was such a secret and they were younger than me. They were thrilled. My friends were just like, why didn't you tell me this? And one thing I learned in this whole this whole scenario, I learned, you know, it's not 1967. People are good. And there, I, I have this faith in humanity that most people are good. They're not going to throw you under the bus and make you feel bad. You already beat yourself up for 49 years. It's okay. Yeah. And um, I tell everyone, because now I talk to a lot of, of uh, adoptees more than, than birth mothers um whenever i i I won a few um places on like a play about my book uh it was just a skit um and then i also had some uh, anthologies i've published in that were parts of my memoir and each time i talk about that i have adoptees come up to me afterward it never fails i told my husband one time i said every time he said every time i said sure and so sure enough he was with me one time and nobody came up afterward. He goes, well, nobody was adoptee in that audience. And we're putting all this stuff in my car. And this lady comes up to me and she goes, can I have a word with you? And I looked at my husband and just went. So it, it's if I can shed any kind of light on the fact that reunion, even if it doesn't go perfect, there's just something so fulfilling of knowing who your child is and who your child to know who their parents are. I mean, I think it's so wrong that all that was kept from so many of us, thousands, hundreds of thousands. It, it's something like no, not knowing where your child is. Is there anything harder than that? Or if they're happy, if they're healthy, if they're loved. If I just even known that, I think I would have been a happier person. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a just it's like a spiritual bond between you know parent and child, and and you know more specifically mother and child. There um, is, you there know, really there, is. That, that can't be taken away, can't be severed, even with distance. Um, it can't be severed. No, no, we really, um, you know, when I was writing the book, I went to a lot of memoir classes because I I knew what I wanted to say, but I'd never written a book, so I wanted it to you know, a good book. I wanted to be the best it could be. And I remember when I first went to one class, they said, oh, this is one lady was in there. Oh, it took me 10 years to write my book. And I said, I don't have that kind of time. 
And everyone looked at me like, are you, you know, is something wrong? You know, were you sick? And I said, no, I mean, at my age, I, I want to write this and I want to, to make it the best I can be, which it did take me five years, really altogether, from then till now. But I wanted it to be the best it could be because I felt like I needed to tell this story in honor of him. I wanted him to know. And my other sons, none of them understood. They go, mom, how could you let someone talk you into doing that? I said, there was no choice. You had no choice. Uh, I was a teenager. And in 1967, teenagers were not the teenagers they are now. We were much more naive. Um, we, we didn't have the choices. And it was frowned on in society to do anything but pretend like this child was, you know, not even real. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so tell me what, um, what happened, uh, with, with your son? I know he's, he's no longer with us. Is that right? Yes. Um, actually we had a beautiful relationship for four and a half years. I flew back there. He flew here. My husband and I flew back. Um, his brother, he got to know his uh, brothers. Um, when he was here for Christmas twice with the kids, or maybe three times, they would come for holidays. We would fly back there. The grandchildren were just, you know, open arms, just accepted us. His, his father, his adoptive father actually passed away from heart disease. He, they were much older than me. Mm-hmm. his adopted parents were like the age of my parents if you can believe that yeah so his uh, father had been in like in his 80s and he died from heart disease a month after we connected oh wow so I never got to say thank you to either one of them actually wrote letters to them just my own personal you know but um four and a half years after we had gotten together he had been actually three years after COVID hit when COVID hit, we couldn't fly back and forth and see each other. Mm-hmm. And we called each other and we texted each other and we Zoomed a couple of times with the kids. And um, I could tell he was really depressed. My mother was a person who was always depressed. She had, something was wrong. Um, she was very a sad person. And she could be happy, but there was this underlying sadness. And I felt that in him many times. And during 2020, all of our conversations ended. I could tell he he felt bad about himself in so many ways. He'd gone through a messy divorce. He went through um, job problems. He was an attorney. And he also was having some health issues. And I know he was um, drinking a lot. And I talked to him and I felt like I would, to any of my children, I, I've had, they've all gone through depressed times. And I have too, and, and I, I always kind of dig myself out of it. So in my mind, I think everyone can just dig themselves out of it. Well, I had no idea it was as bad as it was. He promised me he was seeing a therapist, which I found out he wasn't. And uh, in uh, February of last year, we had our last conversation. It was his daughter's birthday, his oldest daughter, Maddie, the one who's my clone. And we were talking, we called, and I was sitting out on the patio with my husband. We had the phone on speaker so that we could, you know, all talk. And, um, 
it was beautiful conversation. I said, I just got my vaccination. I'm gonna be able, I got my second vaccine. I'm gonna be able to fly back there and see all of you. And, and he made a few comments that now that I look back, I realize. Um, he said, promise me no matter whatever happens, mom, that you'll be close to the kids or you'll never forget the kids or something like that. And I said, are you kidding me? Those are my grandchildren. I'll never, I don't forget my grandchildren. What are you talking about? And he said, um, just promise me that. And I said, well, of course. Well, then he and my husband talked about a fishing trip. My husband said, when we go back there next time, we'll go fishing. And they were, they'd gone before like that. And so it sounded like he were, it was more upbeat. Right before he hung up, he said, I just want to tell you one thing. And I said, what's that? He goes, mom, you're the best thing that ever happened to me. Well, needless to say, that, that was his goodbye. Mm -hmm. And at first it was like, oh, honey, your kids are the best thing that's ever happened to you. And he goes, no, I'm serious. You really are the best thing that's ever happened to me. And that was our last conversation. Uh, 48 hours later, I even thought about calling him that day. And 48 hours later, um, his son, my grandson, actually my oldest grandson, he's, he was 22 at the time, I think. And he called, um, he called me and he said, mom, I mean, Grammy, they all call me Grammy. He said, Grammy, um, I need to talk to you. And I thought, you know, most 22 year olds, text they don't call yeah and that's how my grandkids are and I thought well he's um he's gotten himself in trouble somehow <laughs> you know I, I said what's wrong and he said I I need to tell you um and he told me it was I guess the second hardest thing that ever happened to me sure it almost killed me I'm just now able to talk about it. I spent, a, it's been a year now and a little over a year. And, um, you know, at first, one of the first things I said to my husband was, I'm so devastated and broken. I, I honestly wish he'd never found me. And my husband said, no, you would not have known him. You would not have known what it, he was a good guy. He was a great guy in many, in many ways. He was a, a wonderful person in many ways. You would never have met your grandchildren. Don't ever think that. I mean, and you know, I finally have come to that same feeling now because I had four and a half years that some people will never have. And um, we loved each other. We made it clear to both of each other. Each, each of us made it clear to each other that we um, we adored each other. We were a lot alike and had so much in common. And we never would have had that. I never would have had that gift. I never would have had my grandchildren who will always be part of him. And um, I'm glad I had those four and a half years. Yeah. How, how are his children doing now? They're actually doing really good. They've, um, they haven't been out here till, since last summer, but I was back there and they're doing really well. Their mother is, is uh, she has them in therapy and 
they're good kids, they're smart kids, actually brilliant kids, and they're they have so much going for them. And you know, I know as they get older, and I've heard I've read a lot about suicide and adoptees, and I've read a lot about suicide period since all that happened. Because this was a whole facet I never thought. Um, I had just signed with a publisher a few months before, and I actually wrote to her that day or maybe it was the next day and just said, I don't think I want to publish the book. And she said, take your time. She was wonderful. Um, Brooke Warner, she writes press and she said, take your time. This is something you can't make a decision right away. And yeah. um, we'll just put you, you're in the queue. If you want, we'll keep pushing you back, whatever you want, Laura. So sure enough, a few months went by and I thought about it. And I thought I need to write. I need to, to tell this story. But my book had such a happy ending. It was almost like a, I mean, my book has some pretty tragic times in it, but also has, it had a beautiful ending. And it was almost like a um, Disney movie kind of ending, you know? And I thought, it's not, it's not real. So I asked the publisher if I could write an epilogue and it's very short, but I did, I wrote an epilogue. Because that ties the, that's the real story. And it ties it together the way it's supposed to be tied together. Um, it, it ended beautifully and then it ended tragically. Yeah. So it actually has two endings. Yeah. Wow. Um, so when did you get the, the, um, the notion that you should, you know, write about this, you should memorialize, you know, the story? Um, yeah, when did when did you start writing it and what, what was that what, how did you find that process for you well it was really hard at first <laughs> because i always i've always been told i should write a book <laughs> and i always thought oh i'll just write a book you think it's going to be so easy and i've always been able to write letters and and stories and whatever and never had a problem of course i wasn't doing a, the real thing i wasn't writing a book once i started writing it it almost killed me. I relived that time. Yeah. I would have times that, I don't know, you know how when you're writing, how you go into like a, um, what is it? It's almost like a different world. It's the like zone, a, I call it going into the zone. Yes, and, and you're so, you know, you have to sit yourself down and you find every reason not to start. But once you sit down and you put your hand on that keyboard and you start writing, it's like, you are so glad you finally are doing this. And then you go into that where nothing, you don't even hear anything. You don't see anything. And all of a sudden I would be in 1967 and I would be that girl again. And I would think of things that I think that couldn't have happened. And all these years I pushed it down, pushed it down. I would remember things in the middle of the night. I would get up and go, oh my God, I just remembered those, that girl. Or I just remembered what happened you know, while in the home. And I remember the doctor. I remember, I don't remember giving birth because back then they put you under, they gave you what was called a twilight shot. Mm -hmm. So you have no memory, which is horrible. But I guess they thought it was better that you don't have any memory. I don't know. I think it was done routinely. But um, I, I don't know. I just, I could, I remembered one night I woke up and I could remember holding him because I did hold him a few times, three times. And I remember I had him in the hospital, which he, some of the babies were born there at the home, but I had to be taken to a hospital. 
and it was like a charity hospital in um, New Orleans. And I was left alone. And I remember the next morning after I woke up from the, the sedative, I didn't even know if I'd had a boy, a girl. I always thought he was a boy. But um, the nurse came in. And when I asked her, she said, we're bringing them in in a few minutes because it was a ward mm-hmm. with like six women or more in it. And um, I said, them. And then I realized she was talking to all of us, oh. you know, because her minute was like, what? But um, everything was so archaic then compared to now. I, I mean, when you read my book, you'll see. But it's just, it was a different world. And I think younger people can't even understand how these things were done to us. But when I would write about these experiences, I would break down sobbing. I would have to go outside and just stand there and kind of like come back to, you know, the present. It was the strangest thing and it was hard, but it was the most cathartic, wonderful thing. And actually I had uh, sent my second draft to my son and uh, he called me after just reading part of it and said, I'm, I'm sorry that you had, I put you through that. I said, you didn't put me through that. I said, don't ever think that. I, I, even when I was pregnant with him, I kept thinking I was going to keep him somehow. I thought some knight in shining armor was, because, you know, I was a teenager. Yeah. I thought someone was going to save the day for me and that I would get to take him home. I even visualized myself taking him home. And it was a little crocheted blanket. It was the hardest thing. And I'm writing about leaving him there. So difficult. But I got through it. And then I had, I wrote like five drafts because I kept having to tighten it down, tighten it down. So glad that I did because it's a much better story tightened down. But yeah. Yeah. Less is more as editors uh, are, are fond of saying, right? Um, I've learned to love editors. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, it's, I've had it, I've interviewed a few. Um, and, and they always say, you know, so many times authors think that we're the enemy. We're not. We're just trying to, you know, we're trying to be a, a, a good collaborative partner. But they also have, they also know what works exactly. and what doesn't work. Um, just like your publisher, when they tell you, like they did change my subtitle, they kept my title, but I didn't hesitate to go along with their ideas because I feel like they're the professionals. I'm, I am 73 years old and I'm, Oh my gosh, I'll be 72 next month. But I'm thinking, oh, here I am, just a beginner. They know what they're doing. And, you know, they're all like half my age or younger. And they're telling me, this is what you have to do. And I'm thinking, you're right. (laughs) But at first it was hard. The first time I was told to cut this out, change that, I had to completely rip the second part of my book out and redo it. And when my editor told me that, I was like, "I, I can't. I can't write that anymore and I can't change it. It's the way it has to be. And after a while, I thought about it and thought, you know what? I'm going to do it. And I just completely redid it. So uh, the book, of course, is You'll Forget This Ever Happened. Um, When when will it be available for purchase? Um, Actually, it's available now. You can pre-order it, uh, bookshop.org or Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Um, It will be available for sale, um, May 10th. May 10th. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, just around Mother's Day, huh? Yeah, I I know. I thought about that when they gave me that pub date. I have a, a arc right here advertising mm. my book. <laughs> but there's the birth card. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah there's there a little is. story about this, too. I didn't know I was going to have the birth card on the cover. But uh, probably about three weeks before all this happened with my son, I got a call from the publisher and she said that cover artists want to know if uh, you have that birth card that you talk about in the book summary. And I said, um, no, I actually gave it to my son our first Christmas together. I was trying to think of something sentimental to give him. And my husband said, give him the birth card. And I said, oh, no, no, that's my card. And he said, honey, you have him now. You don't need the card. And I thought about it. And as usual, my husband's kind of the voice of reason. And I'm always kind of, nah, no, first thing out of my mouth. And so I thought about it. And I put it in a memory box with a picture of me when I was that age. Because we, we didn't have a picture together. And then he had given me a picture of him, a photo of him when his um, mother and father first adopted him at five weeks. So I had a copy of that put in there as well. And I had given it to him. Well, he had moved after his divorce and he was still in the you know, depths of depression. And I said, I called him and I said, honey, you know the birth card? The publisher would like a high definition scan of it. Could you take it out of the memory box and go have it scanned? And he said, I'll do that. Um, it's a snowstorm here, which they never have. And they were having a horrible winter. And he said, and there's ice everywhere and Maddie's sick. She's staying with me today. He said, but I will, um, I'll go get that for you, mom. And so I said, no, no, don't risk your life or anything. It's no big hurry. But he did send it to me a couple of days later. So after this was all, all that happened with him, um, and I told the publisher, I don't, you know, I can't do this. Well, she sent me an email probably two or three weeks after our conversation and said, you don't have to look at these now. These are some cover ideas that we have and look at them when you're ready. So when I did look at them, I saw the one they done with the birth card and I just said, that has to, that, that means more to me than now. So, and I have the birth card again, it's back in its little brown box, but um, that's why it's on the cover of my book. Wow, that's a beautiful story. Thank you. Uh, and a powerful one. Um, and everyone listening can pick it up as of May 10th. Of course, as you mentioned, it is available for pre-order now, wherever you buy books. Um, Laura, thank you so much for taking the time to share your, your story with me. Um, it, uh, it's, it's a beautiful story. And I wish you all the best um, with the launch of this book. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me here today. <laughs>